0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is someone you really, really do need to pay attention to. Patrick Joyce is a go-to-market expert who is able to penetrate accounts and with depth and breadth in ways that I've never seen other go-to-market specialists do. He trains people how to do this. And congratulations, Pat. He's uh, recently uh, just taken on a new CRO role. So would you mind giving 60 seconds on your history, please, so people understand where you're coming from?
1: Sure. My undergraduate degree is in mathematics. And the first job that I could do out of school was teaching high school, secondary school, algebra two, geometry, that kind of thing. And, you know, what's the difference between a mathematician And a large cheese pizza is that one of them can feed a family of four, right? So uh, (laughs) uh, teaching high school wasn't the most lucrative career. I realized that I wanted to do something else. It was a good jump off point for me. I learned a lot about how to teach people, how to communicate effectively and take a complex idea and break it down so that somebody else can understand it, put things in English. I learned a lot of those skills. But then found my way into the tech industry. I, I, I thought I was going to use my math skills to become an actuary and do you know risk analysis for insurance companies. Um, but I, I, the first <laughs> job that I got as an analyst. <laughs> what was that? Thank God he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started to and, and the reason why I ended up in sales is because I was doing these reports. I worked for a group health insurance brokerage. And uh, I was coming up with these proposals and giving them to the brokers and the brokers are going and giving these terrible... I'm watching them give these terrible presentations. Like These guys have boats and they're all making $500,000 a year. And I'm sitting there doing all the work, making 60K a year. And I said, something isn't right here. I could definitely do what that guy's doing a lot better than he is. And there's no way that he could do what I'm doing. So something has gone drastically wrong. And that's how I ended up in sales. So I started making cold calls from there. And uh, I took it. I mean, I was in Seattle, so I, I'm selling life insurance over the phone and driving Uber to supplement my measly commission only pay and very quickly figured out that I should be working in one of these tech companies. I'm driving these executives between buildings and things. So I took a job as an SDR and I hit my ramp quota in two days. Um, <laughs> pretty much never turned back from there. I, I mean, I was just on my second career and i was up against a bunch of 20 year olds so pretty much instantly figured out that i should be running the team and then you know uh, <laughs> stayed top of funnel because it seemed like a problem that nobody else really had figured out and that nobody in the building wanted to wanted to address. So if I could do that, then I would never be out of work. Um, so that's uh, and, you know, and the last five years of my life. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Me I mean, ask- because opening new business is, is something that it is always going to be in demand, no matter what happens in the market, you know, we're always going to want to open new business in some way.
0: I, I agree. So th- th- tell me this. I look at the behavior of let's just t- talk about SDRs. And on average, they're probably managing to speak to another living, breathing human being, on average, maybe three, four times a day. And you're paying them for 480 minutes. And you're getting three to four minutes of production out of them. So surely, at some point, you've got to ask yourself, as an SDR or an SDR manager, why is it we're doing things the way we do them? Why do
1: people behave the way they do in the top of the funnel? It's the first question that I asked myself, because I realized that I was on a team of 10. The math is going to blow your mind. And you don't need a math degree to understand how ridiculous this gets very quickly. We were each making $50,000 as a base salary. And there's 10 of us. So there's $500,000 a year, just, just off the top that we're just burning burning down cash. And the product that we're selling costs $100 a month. Okay. So the goal was for each of us to get 20 of these. So 20 times, so it's $2,000 a month. One a day. Still doesn't add up. It still doesn't add up, right? Like if, if I'm bringing in $2,000 a month, but I cost more than that, then how is this even going to make any sense? Well, Well, I guess you can upsell. They're working
0: on the idea that they retain the client
1: because it's. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They could retain the client for two, three years and then all, you know, the, the recurring revenue, of course. Right. But I mean, even just, just to cover the cost, you would think that it was that it would you know offset a little bit more just so that you have a little bit more buffer room. Now, nobody, nobody got to 20 meetings. I made it to 15 or 18 one month, but that was the most that anyone nobody else broke seven. So I mean, this program was just burning cash. It was doing nothing else. And all and of this you is the first thing I fail. wondered. Every it, one it, of you it, set up to fail every month. Completely, completely. Now. The program was designed. I'm not sure that it was ever intended to be be successful based on the way that it was set up. I don't think that it was intentionally as bad as it was, but it was pretty bad. I mean, the CRM, this is my first foray into a sales job at all. I had never seen Salesforce before, but they were asking us to log into the CRM and then go and pull 25 leads. They had all these, uh, they had four years worth of MQLs you know, things that were marked as, as marketing, marketing qualified, qualified leads. leads. They had either downloaded a white paper or, you know, filled out a web form or an ebook or something or filled out, you know, something over the last four years. But there was no data quality management at all inside that system. So all those MQLs, a lead object, right, is not the same thing as an account or in a contact in Salesforce. So Those lead objects, nobody was checking to see was there an account or a contact that it matched up to? So we were pulling 25 a day to call 25 new prospects with about 100 calls was a prescription per day. But I was calling people that were current customers. If I just followed the prescript, if I just did what they asked me to do, like there were people in that lead list that were already paying us. And they would pick up the phone and they would yell at me. Like, didn't you look? And I didn't know. I mean, I, I had never even seen this before. So I immediately abandoned the CRM. This was the first thing that I did. I said, I'm not even going to look at this thing. And I started building my list outside of sales. I figured out that I could sell this, whatever the product was to credit unions. And then I went and found a website that had a list of all the credit unions in the US. And I pulled all the numbers. And basically did VA work for myself and, and and set myself up that way. But the first thing that I did was completely about-faced and did the exact opposite of what everyone was telling me to do. And then I was rewarded for that behavior. And they actually sent me to an executive dinner because I was the highest performer on the team doing completely the exact opposite of whatever they asked me to do.
0: <laughs> this then raises um, a question about how we drive the correct behavior because I, I see a lot of well-intentioned unintended consequences occurring because in theory at least the founders of the business want it to be successful so they hire their sales team and they burn through lots of salespeople. they then have a situation at the end of every quarter where the CFO is beating the drum saying, well, we're going to hit target. You've got to pillage from next quarter. And they create this incredible tariff. If you look at the mathematics of cold calling uh, the traditional way, not intelligently, but the, you know, the, just the smile and dial and just bang the phone, you're talking about three and a half to five and a half thousand dials to get to a second meeting. So the question going through my mind is, well, why don't we just increase the second meeting conversion rate? Because I've just saved five and a half thousand dials. Instead, the, the, the usual behavior is double down on the behavior and make more dials, inflict more emails on people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like that. People talk about 10x, you know, 10x everything and just do 10 times as more. It never worked for me. So th- the prescription was for me to do 100 dials a day. But I figured out that the math was wrong and I was actually doing what I was doing in three to five dials a day. I was literally just spending my time figuring out who I should call and then calling those people and I was I was converting at 50%. So if I got 3 if I got 5 people on the phone, you know, 2 or 3 of them would end up as customers. I spent my time building the list, right? Like the actual list building, not only was I calling people that I knew that we we're going to answer the phone, they worked at a credit union. They were sitting in front of a desk phone and the number was listed on the website. And I and I could see their name and what job they did. And then I figured out like the, the two ways that, credit unions make money. One of them is through loans. They sell loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is by reducing the amount of chargebacks, right? So when people default on those loans, they have to sell that, um, you know, to a, a, a collection agent, right? Exactly. So if I could reduce that and increase the amount of loans, and then I just, that was my talk track and I would leave people voicemails. I was getting callbacks on voicemails. You yes. can't even do that. People, I mean, nobody does that. You know, and and I was getting people to call me back. And then I complete, you know, I I, I changed the emails that I was sending. And that's what I said. I said, I can do two things for you. One, I can increase the number of loans that you're gonna get because you're gonna be able to text your customers. So your your loan process is gonna move a lot faster. And I'm gonna reduce the amount of chargebacks that you have to sell off to the collection agencies. And and that that's how I did what I was doing. Nobody trained me how to do that though. I just understood the I, I I took the time to understand. The business that I was trying to impact. And I think that that's like a key step that it seems like we we should be fighting for here.
0: It sounds like really very basic stuff, but if you don't understand who your customer is and why they should give a damn now, so you need to be timely, you need to be relevant. And when you interrupt their day, you need to deliver value so that they stay on the phone. And they don't hang up and they don't go and they. So the, the, the problem is that people don't do the research. And clearly what you've done is the research. You've got to put in strong foundations. And so the key question I have here is who should be building the list, the least experienced or the most experienced people?
1: Well, you know, I think we're all responsible for our own actions. It's not like I spent five years trying to understand this industry. I only worked at that company for eight months. I mean, inside of my first rant period, I realized that what they were asking me to do was wrong. So I yeah. stopped doing it. And inside three months, I developed my own plan and executed it and then trained other people on how I was responsible for myself. So, I mean, who should be building a list? It's like, dude, what are you going to march in a crossfire? Like, what, like you know, if, if I, I guess if the general asked you to go walk over there, but it's like, dude, they're shooting people over there. I don't really want to walk out into that open field. It seems like I'm going to die if I do that.
0: If we haven't got a clear understanding of who our customer is and why they should care, and we can't enter the world that they occupy and the conversations they are having, then we're just a noisy interruption. And uh, I I think so many organizations are playing the numbers game. Uh, When when, uh, you hear sales leaders talking about sales as being a numbers game, what's your reaction?
1: Well, the number one thing that I think about is that they've fallen under hypnosis from these sales technology companies. <laughs> they've become possessed by this spell, this allure that um, they're going to purchase technology. And the technology is really designed for the bean counter. It's not designed for the rep that's going to go it's in an and, audit break, and break into the business. Yeah, it's and, just and, about audit. it. And, and, and the sales leader is hypnotized by this, right? Because then they can they can build a dashboard and they can show a report to their leader and they can say, look, this is what I made them do. And this is, you know, these these are the actions that I'm taking to get us where we need to go uh, in terms of our, our revenue goals. But none of that stuff is actually moving the ball forward at all. You, you know, we're not taking any positive steps forward by doing any of that. So what, it, it's actually forward? Let, let's get practical, down, down and dirty practical. What, what actually moves pipeline forward? Well, the first thing you have to do is divorce yourself from the sales technology. That's the number one thing you have to do. Stop thinking about it in terms, see, the technology was designed, this is going to be a biblical reference now. The technology was designed to serve the rep. The rep was not designed to serve the technology, right? If you are framing your sales process around a piece of technology and the way that that works, you've completely mishandled the situation. You're going to be looking at, uh, um, at metrics that don't actually get you where you want to be. And where you want to be is in, in the, we're in the business of taking people's money, right? And why do why you ever hand over money for anything? This is something you mentioned earlier. It's like looking for the outcome, right? Yeah. Outcomes are, are, are what we're driving for. So number one, you have to figure out what outcomes your customer wants. Yeah. and how you can help them deliver those outcomes, right? How you, how you can be of service to your customers and then work backwards from there. Everything, the whole game starts right there. Is what is so the outcome that that, that that other person wants that they're willing to part with some of their resources for?
0: So let, let me just emphasize this point. When you care about the customer's outcome, and that is your only focus... The byproduct is if you deliver that outcome, they buy and you make the sale. But in order to do that, you have to show up with the right intent. And my uh, mentor, my friend, my co-author, Simon Bowen, always says that selling is, should be the most noble thing you do in your business. And the problem is that the nobility of selling has been lost to a large extent in favor of transactional selling. And the transaction is fine if you're only thinking short term, but if you want to build a rock solid business built on solid foundations, where you have customers who do most of your marketing for you, who do your advocacy, this community who promotes you out to the world, you have to serve your customer first, and you come last in this. The problem is that if you put the if you put yourself first, your quota first. The buyer knows this: that you get reflected back what you project out. If I'm turning up selfishly, trying to take money from your pocket, as opposed to help you solve your problem and do the right thing by you, why would you feel safe in my company? You don't. I don't have your back. I've only got my back. That's not the kind of relationship that I want with my uh, providers, with my partners.
1: It's magnified in B two B sales because in retail sales and you know direct to consumer or foot traffic isn't really much of a thing as it was before, you know, but you think about as you're walking through the mall, people are trying to sell you things, right? Like it's not, it's almost like um, the relationship there is, is there's an expected sense of, you know, this person doesn't really care because it's it's a short-term relationship, but in business to business sales, you're talking about impacting someone's livelihood, the outcome of, of, the purchase that they make if it works out well for them you know you've you've increased their their chances of survival and their chances of of you know accumulating resources for their livelihood and for their family but if they make the wrong choice it's actually quite damaging for their entire livelihood right like you're you're threatening their resources this whole caring about what their outcome is is completely magnified and becomes the entire focus in B2B sales. And, and to build
0: on that, what is missing in so many salespeople's uh, understanding or caring is how they're going to have to live with the product or service that you sold them afterwards. Because the people who buy it are not necessarily the people who have to live with it. And That's right. If yeah. you don't think about that then what's going to happen is buyer's remorse will be anticipated by the buyer. And they'll think about the regret and blame and the egg on their face and the career-limiting damage that might occur. And you will lose to your number one competitor,
1: the status quo, do nothing. And my specialty is is really in trying to mitigate as much of that upfront as I can. Now, I, I haven't been focused on following these enterprise size deals through all the way, you know, to fruition and, and then getting them to renew. That wasn't my focus. My focus was actually just getting them in the door, which is oftentimes the hardest part. But the first thing that I do, let's say I, I book a meeting at some company, like let's say, you know, a Fortune 50 financial technology company or something like that. Yeah. The first thing, if I book a meeting with somebody, the first thing I do is I'm going to take that meeting and shop it around as many people as I can. I'm going to say, I booked a meeting with Marcus. This is what we were going to talk about. I was hoping we could loop you in and I'm going to go and I'm going to hit probably about 30 people. And I'm going to try to get as many meetings as I can on the calendar before the we even exchanged a word.
0: In the same exact account. same
1: company. That's right. I'm going to use the one meeting that I got. I'm going to take it around town with me inside of that company. And I'm going to try to talk to as, and get as many people either on that call or set up separate calls at different business units, because then my account executive is going to be pretty happy with me if, that, if that's what we get done.
0: Pat, this is a really interesting idea. Because for, for me, I've always maintained that I, I, I've lived by a philosophy, which is do less but better on purpose. That's the official version. Double the money for half the work is my motivation. Uh, If there's a way I can reduce the amount of work and increase the the volume of return, then it's a win. Um, And so what I'm looking for are ways to do that. Now, I really like this intelligent way of surrounding and going deep and wide in an account because I don't want volume. I I want to, you know, if if I am prospecting an account, I want to convert it if it's correct for both us and for them. So why is it that we have this mud-at-the-wall approach when, in fact, if you surround the account and you're having all these conversations, you end up building this rich tapestry of understanding of the business, what they're trying to accomplish, their vision, their strategy, the bottlenecks, the um, struggling moments, um, and seeing it holistically instead of just seeing just a fraction of it. Well, why do you not put that effort in?
1: It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a growth mindset versus a scarcity mindset. In a scarcity mindset, the rep is taking, okay, I got that one meeting at company A, I need to go to company B through company F, and I'm going to go and try to get those meetings also. In reality, you could take the average deal size that, uh, at, at company A and, and go through the roof with it if you actually end up understanding all the different business units. Because the more conversations that you have, the more that you learn about that company, just like you were saying. I mean, it, it's like every conversation that you have, all of a sudden you're learning, you're learning more and then you go to the next meeting and then you're more well-informed, right? It's, just, it's, a, it's a compound interest, effect of, it, of information and knowledge. Um, so how do which, you choreograph you know,
0: those conversations? Because this is really interesting as well. Because obviously you don't want to wet your powder with the people who can ultimately make the decision to say yes. But equally, you're going to have to navigate all those other people who might be able to say no. And I'm curious how you plan the choreography of who you speak to. Is there a sequence or is it really
1: just potluck? Some of it is, is luck. Some of it is choreographed. But all of it is really being able to read and react. You don't get to decide in any creative process. You have to go from having nothing to having something. This is in art, in music, in especially in sales. You have to take a risk when you go from from nothing to something. You have to take some. You, you're assuming risk in that creative process. If you're gonna, if you're going to create a sale from nothing, so I have to take whatever I can get and then turn that into something. So some of it is just going to be luck of the draw. Okay. So
0: once you're surrounding that account, what are the the milestones that you're looking to reach what what are the kind of conversations that you know you have to have in order to ensure that you've got that coverage across
1: the cast of characters and yeah building that consensus well this is the, the quickest possible way to do it and i've gone in and, and- done this exact process and completely flabbergasted the CRO, the CEO, and all of the enterprise accounting executives. They didn't think that it was possible, it's a, it seemed as though I was showing them fire or the wheel. And all I was doing, taking the outcomes that I had achieved with other customers and then showing them to the stakeholders at the companies where there was white space. So we don't have any business in these four or five you know, large enterprise companies in the space we've done some other work with these companies. This is what we did with them. All I do is I take the little snippet, take the outcome, and then I show it to the people that it might be important to. I have a list of probably about 30 people. And I'm going to cycle through maybe five or 10 of them at a time and show them those outcomes. And then I'm basically trying to get a fish on the line. right? Like I'm baiting those conversations. And then once I get one conversation... All I need to do is, before I even have the conversation. I get the meeting on the calendar, and then I go and I show this to the other people that I've been showing the outcome to and say, hey, I got a meeting with Marcus. Um, this is what we said we were going to talk about. Like, maybe I could loop you in. All of a sudden, the guard is down, and now I have a second meeting booked, or I have more, you know, I have, I have additional people um, that are going to go to that first meeting, right? And, and every time I have a conversation... I can go back and then you know go through the list again. And now I'm I'm building a reputation for myself inside of the org. All of a sudden everyone's heard of me.
0: So when you're doing that, are you trying to get people into the room? Collectively,
1: or do you want to pick them off one by one? Or will that depend on their personality? I want both. I want. I want all of it. If they're supposed to be in the room together, they will be. If they're leading different business units, they're going to give me different pieces of information. So here's a good example: one of the largest banks in the world that I was working with, and they've got a bunch of different business units. One of the conversations that I had wasn't going to lead to any revenue. It just wasn't. But I learned about how that piece of their business operated. And that in a different conversation that I had with a different business unit, I was well-informed by the one that wasn't going to lead to any revenue immediately. Like I wasn't going to close any any business with this business unit A. But when I talked to business unit B, I knew about how business unit A works because I had that conversation, right? So it doesn't even really matter what order I do it in. It's like a, a poker player. It's like every time I get to see, you know, one of your cards... I'm more well-informed. So you play the uh, hands of you adults.
0: You're you're building your insight base. You're using that to navigate through the rest of the organization. You're identifying the key players who are likely to be tempted by the baited hook of the outcome. And you're choreographing a sequence of conversations. At what point do you have enough information then to be able to take it to the C-suite so that you've got your groundswell
1: of support from the audience? Instantly. Instantly, as soon as you get any information at all. Because it, if you do that, you're in the 1%. The 99% of the sales reps are not doing that. So as soon you're as you get any piece of information...
0: You're not waiting No, I'm not waiting started. for anything. You're just going straight for it.
1: Okay. No, I'm, I'm going right after it. And I built $6 million in pipeline in six weeks this way. And it literally caused the CEO that I was working for to put his coffee down in the middle of the meeting and ask me how I did that. Because they were under the assumption that it was going to take three years to close one of these deals, and in six weeks, somebody that doesn't know anything about the industry showed up—like I'm this just kid shows up wearing a t-shirt and then goes and opens one of the fifth largest bank in the world (laughs) (laughs) with with no information. He's like, "How did you do that?" I mean, that's exactly what I. Outstanding. So
0: let me ask you this then, because I see many. Organisations have this massive disconnect between marketing and sales. There's a lot of structural tension there and lack of alignment. From the customer's perspective, that that's really symptomatic of just how terrible the customer experience is probably going to be when you get bounced from marketing to um, the SDRs, the SDR to the AE, the AE to CS, CS to um, account management, um, and it, there's always friction. There's there's always you have to start again. And there doesn't seem to be any emphasis of putting the customer at the heart. What advice would you give to someone who's looking at maybe a moribund um, sales and marketing operation about creating that alignment?
1: Number one mistake that I see is conflating inbound marketing with outbound sales. Those are two completely different things. They're two totally different concepts. Inbound marketing... You're talking about brand awareness, you're doing demand generation, you're putting out content pieces, you have webinars, you're trying to get people to walk in the door, you're trying to generate foot traffic. And then when you get that foot traffic, what you want, would like to do is, is to help people confirm their belief that they've made the right decision in, in coming to you because they have a problem that they're trying to solve that they think that you can help them handle. So they'd like to confirm their belief. So the language that you use and the approach that you use is, is designed to do that. Now, in outbound sales, a lot of what happens is either the marketing team gets control of the SDRs or the sales leader doesn't really know how to go and open the new business themselves. So they take a lot of that work that's already been done for inbound marketing, and then they apply it to outbound sales. So when you're trying to interrupt somebody's day and introduce a new concept that that, uh, they hadn't considered yet, a way of handling their problems that they hadn't necessarily thought of themselves, uh, and you're using this inbound marketing concepts, there's immediate friction. Immediate is, it, there's just tension there, right? We're not talking about the outcomes. Marketing tends to hide th- the stuff that I end up using. So they have the answer. They just, it's just hidden somewhere in their case study. They have this laminated PDF and they have a white paper and they talk about all you know this industry jargon. It's deep down in there somewhere that the person that's looking for it will know that, You know, it will help them confirm it. But from an outbound perspective, we're not doing it that way. Um, So I think that's where a lot of the friction comes from.
0: Okay. Well, one of the things that really amazes me is the amount of effort that goes into being noisy at volume with very little by way of result. It seems to be the case that a 1% conversion rate is okay. Um, but if you ran any other department like that, you'd be out on your ass in, uh, you know, inside of a month or a week, probably, um, uh, or in jail, you know, if it was your health and safety team. Something that uh, I, I struggle with is the amount of emphasis on volume. And um, you know, th- there's all this talk about marketing being data-driven. Marketing has been for a long time, but sales isn't. And I think where sales really needs to focus on being data-driven is in the small data, not the big data. When you're going into an account, that's really small data. It's about an individual account. It's not about huge marketplace and playing the volume game. Hmm. So I'm really curious about how you're teaching salespeople to become more data-driven and really understand it and welcome it as an ally.
1: Yeah. The first thing that I talk about is stop accepting subpar results. Now, 1% to 3% conversion an email campaign is pretty much what we're taught to accept, and I think that the reason why is there's hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital behind these companies that lead you to those results. So the first thing you should do is divorce yourself from the from the technology that is designed to keep you in a in a certain outcome bracket in terms of um, you know positive results. Now, one to three percent reply rate on a cold email campaign is pretty much what everybody gets. I don't accept anything below 10%. 10 to 15% is what I'm I'm used to getting. And that's even that even that is not great, right? But 5% if I can get 5% positive replies on a cold email and this is talking about people that are not your customers you would like them to be and you're just sending them emails you're not even talking to them on the phone. 5%, 1 in 20. I can get 1 in 20 to say yes, I will talk to you and, and consider a meeting. And everybody else is getting 1 in 99 and just Doing that, I mean, three in 99, it's like, I can't even imagine that you could go about your day and accept those kind of results. So, the first thing is stop accepting bad behavior that leads to bad results and question what are we doing with this technology, right? Like, are we taking inbound marketing concepts and then spreading them across an account base that we don't have any business doing that with? I think that's the behavior that leads to these results is we're imagining that the 3% of the market that's in an active buying window, that's walking in and asking you for help, the 40% of the market that's experiencing some type of latent pain that might be willing to explore some type of a result with you is going to respond to the same type of messaging that the 3% is, right? So you've got 3% of the market in an active buying window, 40% Forty percent of the market is experiencing some type of latent pain, with the, or you know uh, a result that they're not all that happy with, and then the other fifty-seven percent is pretty much all set, and they're they're not going to talk to you anymore. But okay. we're largely missing on that forty percent of the market that's, it's, that's experiencing some type of latent pain.
0: Right. So these are people who Bob Nestor would say are in the passive looking phase. So they realize they have a problem. They're looking for a solution, but they're not proactively uh, trying to find a vendor to solve the problem. They're trying to learn how. And it's our job to arrive at those moments of peril and be the guide. And this is where I think um, some real intelligence needs to be applied. If you don't understand your customer's real buying journey and those moments where they struggle so you can show up at those times, then chances are you're just going to be playing the volume game, which is the one in 99. And the challenge with that is that it's expensive. And the price, you know, I always remember a wonderful quote from Dan Kennedy, the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And there are a load of organizations that I've blacklisted because their reps just piss me off. And I love salespeople and I'm tolerant of uh, inbound calls. But when they are shit, they're going to get blacklisted.
1: I'll block them. Now, what if we thought about those concepts as we were trying to segment the accounts and come up with either a territory plan or what type of verticals are we going to go after? Or should we segment by revenue bands, employee size? You know, how should we break this up? I feel like a lot of times this sort of happens haphazardly. And that's one of the big blind spots. Right, But all of a sudden, if you think about what the the buyer might be experiencing, what the problems that they might be having, when they might be having those problems, and then you try to inform the decisions that you're making that way, all of a sudden, we can make progress really, really quickly. Well, part of the challenge here is that
0: a lot of reps are thrown in at the deep end after having been given some shitty product training, which is dressed up as sales training, and then told Completely. to just hammer the phones, you know, it, uh, dial for dollars, smile and dial, all that kind of stuff. Without any thought, you end up with this massive burnout of perfectly good talent which I I see as an absolute travesty because there there are billions and billions of dollars being left on the table every day uh, because salespeople don't have any business acumen. They don't understand the impact, the implications, the, the world in which your sale will then have to be lived with. They don't understand the moving parts, the conversations that the senior executives are having. So they're not relevant when it comes to the decision. And they're one of 30 decisions that need to be made. They're they're number 29 in the pile. They never get seen because they don't understand how to make themselves relevant to the human beings
1: who have to live with the outcome. And unfortunately, I think that the word scapegoat should be written at the top of every offer letter for any sales position, <laughs> and sales managers. Interestingly enough, because the managers,
0: the, well, the, the managers are the most undertrained, underserved, under pressure people, and they get the completely. least amount of attention. It's and they, the they have in management.
1: They have to own the number, and then they don't do anything. They they're not allowed to do anything to impact it inevitably they're in a catch 22 and answer to a lot of the problems that you just outlined oftentimes is trying to train the reps to arm wrestle the prospect into becoming higher on the priority list instead of some sort of a, a top down you know treat the the root cause of the problem type of solution we're focused on the outcomes that we can help deliver and then you know the ones that we've helped others do and in and, and, maybe segmenting our accounts that way and building a territory plan that way and then even allocating quota that way and then thinking about how we're going to reach the revenue goals. Like I was completely blown away with the number of conversations that I, I was assuming that these were basic platitudes that were, were you know, being addressed at the C-level and they're not. And part of the reason why they're not is because there's not a lot of visibility from your CRO your entry-level rep, right? Like there's there's a lot of uh, uh, different layers in between there that sort of block the vision from one to the other. And I think that's where a lot of the answer lies.
0: So this then really uh, speaks to the fifth function of management in my world. So I think managers should uh, have five really critical duties. Hire the best people, which means recruitment is a number one. uh, First of all, it's their number one activity. And it's something they should be doing every day, whether they have a vacancy or not. So they should be building the bench of rock solid A players and good B plus players who can become A players in the pipeline. The second is get the best out of them. That means a proper pre-onboarding, proper onboarding, training, mentoring, real coaching, genuine accountability and serving them to help them become the best they can possibly be. That's my job as a manager. If I don't care about the other people's success more than my own, then I'm not going to do my job. And this is why player managers, I don't believe, work either, uh, work well um, in the medium to long term, because given uh, the pressure of either hitting their own quota or worrying about whether one of their reps hits, they're going to focus on theirs because that's how they pay their mortgage. The third thing is they have to um, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. That's the manager's job. It's not just technology. It's the right mental systems. It's the right behaviors. And they need tools uh, in terms of how they communicate, uh, how they recover from knockbacks and how they build resilience, how they learn. They also need to ensure that the manager is blocking acts of idiocy from above, which they shouldn't have to, but God knows they do, and helping clear roadblocks. So this is where um, the coaching really comes in as well, helping people solve their own problems, but clear those roadblocks by clearing the 20% that they can't work out on their own. And then finally, manage inclusively. And this is where you have to listen to your reps. And But if your reps don't have a voice, you're not going to learn what's really going on. And they're the ones who are at the front line. They're the, they're the ones in front of the customer. They're the ones speaking to customers. Love your reps. You have to love your people. And th- this is something that I'd see is totally lacking. They're treated like a commodity
1: that's entirely throwawayable. You know, and I think a lot of the stress that reps are subjected to comes from the fact that there's not all territories are created equally. Not all, um, you know, patches, patch assignments are, are equitable there's just not the same propensity. They all get the same quota, but they don't get the same, you know, resources to pull from. Meaning like if I, if I get assigned, let's say Tennessee and Arkansas and somebody else gets Texas and California, I mean, it's an extreme example. It's geographic territories, but you know, the, the, you know, you could see where I'm going with this. Yeah, right?
0: absolutely. Um, yeah. The other are not necessarily brimming with quite the same as much as LA. That's
1: right. That's yeah. right. Now, you know, this is like a, I mean, I guess you could call it a revenue operations problem. And at large companies, like let's say a company like Microsoft, they've been solving this for a long time and they're pretty advanced in the way that they handle something like that. Even a company like Salesforce, you know, is a a fairly large operation. And then you compare that to one of these like, you know, mid-market SaaS companies, fairly junior type of approach in comparison. And I think that there's a lack of, exposure to what it looks like at a high level, you end up with, you know, thousands of reps sold a bag of goods that's not necessarily there. You know, you're going to be able to come in and make this commission uh, and it's and it's actually impossible um, because, you know, Johnny got assigned into the vertical that's actually going to buy something.
0: Tom, Tom Shodorf, who took uh, Splunk from 10 million to 1.3 billion in five years, made the point that one of his real bugbears is the overassignment of quota. When you add up, all the quotas of all of your reps they shouldn't add up to 300% of your target because you are literally setting people up to fail and you you're just throwing mud at the wall in the hope that some of your reps might get there and that's great for the uh, the uh, the senior execs and the owners cuz you know they're all clinking champagne glasses because they hit their quota, the VC is happy. But all the people who got you there are being burnt out. And it's the sales floor is littered with their corpses. And the burnout rates are shocking at the moment. 30% of salespeople worldwide are suffering from some form of mental health problem. That's fucking terrifying. And it's an obscenity. There is no reason for it other
1: than greed and piss poor management. It's the easiest answer. And I think it's also the most common answer, right? Is to just 300% of what the number that I get from finance is, that's what I'm going to assign as a sales target uh, for the CRO to protect their salary and to protect the people that are, that are close to them. they sort of stick together and then they leave the rep holding the bag. It just, I've seen it happen over and over and over again, over quota. And then, you know, hopefully you'll get there. And then they even do like, you know, really dirty things with like these improvement plans. You know, you you put a rep on a PIP, And then you have them race to the target that they're never going to get there. And then you you set up the goalpost like right before the the deal that's going to put them over the line closes so that you end up having it. You get the sale and then you don't have to pay them commission because you fired them on the pip. I mean, like I've seen this stuff happen over and over and over again. It's it's completely, yeah, it's obscene
0: behavior. This has been incredibly insightful. I'd I'd like to wrap up on one thing, which is uh, how... We as managers need to show up to our reps, and what contract, what promise we have to make them, so that they know that we have their back. That when they come to work, it's safe, and they are
1: allowed to take risks, so that they can, you know, stretch. I, this one, I have. I, I know exactly how to <laughs> how to handle it because. As I was telling you in a previous conversation, it harkens back to the time that I spent as a teacher. But essentially, the process is to, if you want to take any group of people and get them moving in the same direction as a leader, number one, they have to feel, truly understand, truly believe that you are putting their livelihood and their welfare ahead of your own. You're willing to to risk yourself for them. That is the first thing that they need to understand. every day. And the only way that they are ever going to understand that is if you, on an individual one-to-one level, show them that you understand what they are trying to accomplish, where they are trying to go with their career, what their aspirations are outside of their job, what are they trying to accomplish... And then show them that you're willing to help them get there on an individual basis with each one of them. And once you can do that, it is like you have a magic wand. All of a sudden, you've got a group of people that will go to hell and back for you because they know that you're trying to lead them to the prom- to, to their individual promised lands.
0: Okay. So, uh, Pat, we're coming to time now. So tell me this. You, you can go back in time to your 23-year-old idiot self. What one... Choice bit of advice would you give him?
1: Don't worry about it so much. All the experience that I accumulated from from twenty three to current day, you know, for the last ten or fifteen years, it all amounted to the unique ability that I have now. And I think uh, along the way, I was really worried that I wasn't going where I needed to be, or that I wasn't moving fast enough, or that I wasn't going to get there. Um, Don't worry about it so much. Get the experience. Live the life right? Buy the ticket, take the ride. That's a uh, Hunter S Thompson quote. Just look around and, and take in the experiences that you're getting and really pay attention to what's going on around you. And don't worry about what's going to happen so much. It's it's not really worth it. Any of the, the self-doubt, uh, get rid of all that stuff. That's the best piece of advice. Just enjoy the ride. Don't worry about where you're going to go. You're going to end up right where you're supposed to be. And it's, it's not crazy. like you have much choice in the matter anyway. What's really interesting is the illusion of choice. I think what's really
0: important is learning how to respond well to adversity and to recognize your attachment to the outcome, your ego is lethal. You know, the Buddha was right. It is the root to all misery attachment and le- learn to let go of that stuff and enjoy the ride, the ups and the downs. The, the downs are where you're going to get your best learning. And if you play it safe, that is the most unsafe option, particularly in a world where sales is changing so fast. The environment in which we sell is changing so fast. In fact, let's wrap up on this one because I'd love to get your take on this. Big picture, future of sales. How do you see the, the sales profession evolving or even disintegrating?
1: This is one of those questions where it's almost like um, every song that's ever going to be played has already been played. There's not a whole lot that you're going to do. If you look at the history of sales theory, you know, since we've been writing things down and and trying to train people how to do things better in the last, I don't know, let's say 50 years, Mm -hmm. there's there's a guy named Zig Ziglar. You're probably familiar with Zig, right? If you read Zig Ziglar, you listen to his speeches you listen to his talks and things like that everything that's ever been written down in the last 40 years he already said it he said it all it's like if you just if you just read zig ziglar and then everything that came after that it's already been said so it's this it's this cyclical it's almost like a a a stylistic cycle right it's 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 like this all of a sudden, uh throwback jams become popular. It's like in the '90s we had these songs that were from popular from the '70s. All of a sudden, we're in modern hip hop. It's like this. It's like this uh never-ending cycle. So Every I don't think that there's anything.
0: Hollywood films
1: get recycled, um, but instead it's exactly of a Western. They become a, um, a sci-fi. I don't know that we're going to come up with anything new. If you want to. Figure out what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, look at what we were doing about ten years ago, and then and then you know you'll you'll start to see it. I so what's in the immediate future? I think you're going to see some a lot of the what happened in the pre SDR world. You know, the pre predictable revenue model is going to start coming back into fashion. I think that's probably what's in the immediate. You know, in the immediate future in the next ten years.
0: Uh, I, I think so. I, I, well, my reckoning is that about thirty to forty percent of what are currently entry level sales jobs will disappear and they'll either be subsumed into marketing or they'll be replaced by things like intelligent websites because i don't need a rep uh, to phone me up to tell me about the you know the uh, widgets on a server when i can yeah. uh, look that up and you know i think it was um 67% of people surveyed by gartner said that they wanted a seller free buying experience
1: that's right. Uh, that's right. Now uh,
0: 30%, 30%. And 67% said that they hated the experience of engaging the salespeople.
1: <laughs> that's believable. Now I'll give you a real answer too. I mean, the first answer was non-answer, but my real answer is that I think that people like me are, are going to become better compensated. So a top of funnel rep, somebody that can go in and open new business in, in anything, you know, almost like, like the Navy SEAL of the SDR, like the the high level top of funnel rep will end up being a more highly coveted position, highly trained, better paid than the average closing rep, because it's actually, you know, sort of a a higher skill activity to do what I'm doing than it is to close the business. Once you have the pipeline that's full. Um, So, you know, I can almost even imagine a flip in the model. Um, And I could talk for probably another hour why I think that, but you know, I'll I'll leave it there. I, I think you'll see a flip between STR is this, entry-level low-paid position to all of a sudden it's a specialist that's highly paid and highly sought after and aren't many of them.
0: I definitely agree with you. I think um, people with your skill and organizations like that, I suspect a lot of that functionality will be outsourced. You know, I, I work with Sales Driven. I know you're familiar with them. And what they're doing in terms of creating this human AI partnership in order to enable their reps to be way, way more productive. you know, having six to 20 conversations an hour with people who pick up the phone, are in your ideal uh, customer profile, and you've done a really good micro segmentation. In fact, I'm using them now to book second meetings for my clients. So they, they do the initial one uh, and they do the prequel, and I'm only interested in the second meetings. Now, being able to outsource to, uh, to a, a firm to be able to do that, that arbitrage is thousands of hours of time.
1: And doing yeah, the it really problem is when you're doing the outsourcing, it's hard to decide which companies are actually going to be able to do that for you. You yeah. know, uh, that's really good. It's yeah, taken me thirty-five
0: right. years to find one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, Pat. This has been really very, very interesting. I'd love to have you back, and and I, I suspect there will, there will be many uh, conversations like this. Of course, how can people yeah. get hold of you?
1: If you go to my LinkedIn profile, my phone number's on there. You can call me anytime. Send me a text message. I'm authorizing you to send SMS. Actually, I'd prefer if you do. Don't bother calling. Call and leave a voicemail. I'll probably never listen to it. If you send me a text message, I'll reply tomorrow. And you uh, notice but, yeah, you didn't link- mention email. <laughs> Don't even bother. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a disaster zone. Don't even bother with email. But LinkedIn or, or my phone number's on there too. Patrick William Joyce.
0: Pat Joyce, thank you.
1: Yep. Thanks, Marcus. It was great. This is Marcus Kalki
0: signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you haven't found this insightful and instructive, then frankly, I think you're dead. But take notes, go back and listen to it again, and then tag somebody who really needs to get the message, probably your revenue leaders. Do it anonymously, do it through some fake account, but make sure that they listen. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.